Let's pray. And then we'll open up God's word. Mm, I, I pray now for your help upon me, Lord, as I open up Isaiah 41. I need your help, Lord. You, you know how much I do. And I pray that you would work in all of our hearts, that you would soften our hearts and show us by the work of your spirit the truth that you're revealing here and, and deeply impact us this morning, I pray. So come, would you do a mighty work now, I ask, in me and in all of us for the glory of your name. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Good. Well, years ago, I was um, with some pastors at a restaurant. I think we were having like dessert. It was like maybe at 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night. And we had finished our pie and ice cream or whatever we had. And we were heading out, you know, paying our bill and heading out. And there was a young couple sitting in the waiting area. I'm not exactly sure why. And one of the pastors walked up to this young couple kind of surprised me. He just walked up to him and he said, uh, really humbly, really lovingly, has anyone ever told you to about Jesus Christ? Just out of nowhere. And, uh, and then what happened was this warm, extensive conversation developed between this couple and this pastor and lots of back and forth and, and really, I mean, really personable and real. And the, I think if I remember right, the end result was that they gave him their phone number and they were going to be talking more in the future. And as I left that night, two things deeply impacted me about what had just happened. One was, it just felt so right watching him Oh, it scared me, but watching him talk to, to this couple, because it just struck me, no matter what their background is, no matter what position in life they're in, no matter what belief system they're involved in, what they have to hear about is Jesus Christ. What they needed to hear that night was about Jesus. And it was just so right that he humbly and lovingly uh, broached the subject with them. That's one thing that struck me. The second thing that puzzled me was, if it felt so right watching him do that, why do I only rarely do that sort of thing? And I said to search my heart. And as I thought about it and prayed about it, what struck me was, I just, there's just too much fear and uh, timidity in me. And that, that was like a number of years ago, but the Lord just like put a spotlight on fuller fear and timidity, man. You, we, we got to work on that. And, and I would guess that probably all of you, the thought of walking up to somebody in a restaurant cold out of nowhere just like sends chills up and down your spine. And, and God maybe doesn't call all of us to do that, but how about our neighbors and the people that we work with and family members who don't know Christ? And I would guess that for all of us, fear and timidity is an issue. I know it still is for me. I'm always working on it. But here's the good news. In Isaiah chapter 41... God gives us a truth which if we will see it and embrace it and ask him to help us wrap our hearts around it, it will, and I've experienced this even this week, it will give us boldness and love and it will help us to overcome fear and timidity so that we will be moving towards people with compassion and longing to share the gospel with people in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and family members. So let's turn to Isaiah chapter 41. And this is an amazing truth that God gives us here. So if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We're going to go through pretty much this whole chapter this morning. So I want you to have a Bible in front of you so you can follow along with us. 
pretty much verse by verse. Isaiah 41 is on page 601 in the Bibles we're passing out. Now here's just some recap on who was Isaiah, what is this book. Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet, which meant that he was called by God and gifted by God to speak and to write Truth that was completely from God, 100% true truth from God. And so the words that we're reading here are the very words of the living God, right here, that God gave to Isaiah to write. And he gave these words to Israel around 700 B.C. And they're here in the Old Testament for our benefit as New Testament believers as well. So let me just start with this first question. What's the point of Isaiah 41? And the answer is right there in verse 1. Here's the theme for the whole chapter. Isaiah 41 Verse 1. Here's what God says. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. What's going on here? God's talking to all of humanity. He's talking to the coastlands, which is a figure of speech for kind of the farthest regions of the world at that time. And he's talking to the peoples, which is all the ethnic, all the ethnic groups. So he's talking to all of humanity. And he calls all of humanity to do two things. First, he says, listen, because he's going to tell them about who he is as God. So first he says, listen, he's going to tell them about himself as God. And then he says, once you've heard that, Regroup, renew your strength, get your stuff together, and then you come and tell me about your gods. And the reason he's doing that is he's inviting all of humanity. He says, I want all of humanity publicly compare me with all your gods, all your philosophies, all your belief systems. I want you to publicly compare me with whatever it is that you're believing in. Now, why would God do that? It's kind of like a, like a taste test. Remember Coke and Pepsi? Okay, it's like, just taste and see. Now, why would God do that? Why would he invite all of humanity? Compare me with whatever you're trusting in, with your gods, your religions, your spiritualities, your, your belief systems. Compare me with what you believe in. Why would God do that? It's because he knows that on every front, on every question, on every issue, he is infinitely superior. They are infinitely inferior on every front. So here God is inviting all of humanity. Compare me to whatever you're believing. Now, here's why this would be encouraging to us. First of all, some of you are not yet believers in the God of the scriptures. And you're you're processing this, you're learning, we're glad you're in that process. But I would hope that this would be very encouraging to you. Because what this should show you is that the God of the Bible does not say, just close your, mind to, close your eyes or your mind to all options and just some kind of blind leap of faith. Just believe in me, period. Don't think about anything else. No, he says, compare me with whatever you are believing in. Compare, straight up comparison. Compare me with any other religious system, any other so-called God, any other philosophy or worldview out there. Compare. That's what God invites you to do. Not just some kind of a blind faith thing, but a full-blown comparison. He wants you to ask some hard questions, like, which has more hard evidence? Which will more deeply satisfy the longings of your hearts? Which offers more? Which is most realistic about the reality of suffering and trials? 
which most takes into account what we know about reality. Ask the hard questions and compare me. And God's not the slightest bit afraid to do that because he just is blazingly superior, infinitely superior to everything else. So he just says, compare. So if you're still in the process of learning about the God of the scriptures, be encouraged and, and compare. This also, I hope, would be encouraging to those of us who are followers of Jesus because God isn't afraid about having people compare him with whatever else they're believing, and so we shouldn't either. We shouldn't be afraid about just going to people and just saying, have you considered Jesus Christ? Have you thought about who he is? Ask them, you know, compare the God of the Bible with whatever you're relying on to secure and satisfy you for, for the rest of your life. Just, you know, honestly, make, make a comparison. Ask them, you know, think about which has more evidence, which satisfies more, which, which promises more, which is more realistic. Ask these hard questions. So if God isn't afraid of being compared, we shouldn't be afraid of inviting the comparison. So let that encourage you as well. God is infinitely superior to whatever they are trusting in right now, but the only way they'll see that is if we ask them to look at it. That's the means that God uses. So that's the whole theme of chapter 41, is God is inviting all of humanity, compare me with whatever else you're believing in, and what we will see unfolding in this chapter is that God is infinitely superior. So that's our second question. So how does God compare? He says, compare me. How does he compare with all other gods? There's three, three points that he makes. He's just walked through the text. First of all, only God has revealed himself in history. Look at verses 2 and 3, first of all. God says, Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He, this person who stirred him up, gives up nations before him, this one from the east, so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. So what God's saying here is he, God, has stirred up somebody from the east who's going to trample kings and trample nations. Okay, So who is this? Well, we see in the future, next couple chapters, his name is Cyrus. Cyrus was the emperor of the Medo-Persian Empire. So he was empire, emperor, big old massive empire, and he moved westward. We have that, okay, here's the map. Okay, so here's Media, here's Persia. All this green is what ended up being Cyrus's domain. But he started over here and just moved this way and just <laughs> demolishing everyone who had the slightest bit of resistance. That's who Cyrus was. And God is saying, I raised up Cyrus. I caused Cyrus to move westward and have that demolishing power. Now, if you're thinking, which I hope you are at this point, you might say something like, well, you know, with all due respect, anybody could say that they did that, right? I mean, you could say that you deposed Hosni Mubarak this last week or two, right? You could say that. I did it. Oh, yeah, okay, anybody could say that. But what you have to understand about what's happening here is that Isaiah wrote these words... 150 years before there was any Cyrus. This was written in 700 BC. Cyrus came on the scene 550 BC. 
So before there was any Cyrus, before there was any Medo-Persian empire, before there was even a Babylonian empire, when Assyria, this is three empires previous, when Assyria was still the bad dog in the area, God said, I'm going to raise up Cyrus, a man named Cyrus from the east, who will destroy everything he moves towards in the west. And 150 years later, it happened exactly as God had said. Now, only a supernatural, sovereign being can call something 150 years before it happens and then make it happen. And so what God is doing here is he is saying, I have revealed myself in history. Why would God make this prophecy 150 years ahead of time? Tell everybody about it. what's going to happen through Isaiah 700 B.C., And then 150 years later, it happens. This emperor named Cyrus is there. Why would God do that? Because he wants to reveal himself in history. He wants to go public with who he is. So that all the nations will see, God is God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is real. He is alive. He does things. See, only the God of Abraham, only the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has revealed himself in history. I mean, think about it. We've got... um, he delivered Israel from Egypt, right, with massive signs and wonders. He parted the Red Sea. He delivered Daniel from the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the, from the fiery furnace. You just go on and on and on and on. All through the Old Testament, God's just like revealing himself, revealing himself. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. God's showing up. He's showing up. He's showing up because he wants to reveal himself to you and to all those who've lived throughout history. And then, of course, the most powerful way God has revealed himself in history is how? Jesus Christ. God sent his own son, the God-man Jesus Christ, born of a virgin. He came to the earth, and everywhere he went, you can see Godhood, deity, in everything he does. He commands blind eyes to see. They see. He commands five loaves and two fish to multiply. They multiply. He commands storms to stop. They stop. He commands Lazarus' corpse to live. It lives. And then he died on the cross purposefully, voluntarily, willingly to bear the punishment for sin so we could be forgiven and saved like we've worshipped about with communion this morning. And then to display God's glory even more and his power, God raised his son from the dead. So ask yourself this question. What other gods have revealed themselves in history? None. None have. So when it comes to all the the hard evidence of who God is, hard evidence of a system, God has repeatedly throughout world history revealed himself, revealed himself, revealed himself, revealed himself in tangible, flesh and blood, miraculous ways. Only God has revealed himself in history. No other God has done that. So God says, compare me. Compare me to Krishna. Compare me to Buddha. Compare me to any other system. All the hard evidence is displayed by God, by the way he's revealed himself in history. In history. Second, only God frees people from fear. Start with verse 5 here. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. This is the peoples. There's something that's caused them to be afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. So there's some crisis going on, some difficulty that's come upon the world. and Everybody's trembling and fearful. So what do people do who are trembling and fearful when they don't turn to the God of Abraham, the father of Jesus? What do they do? Verses 6 and 7. 
Everyone helps his neighbor, says to his brother, be strong. And then the craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths with the hammer strengthens him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. What's being talked about here? They're making an idol. This is where we see God's sense of humor going on. So the nations, they don't turn to the God of Abraham when crises come or when things make them be fearful. They don't turn to God. The best that people can do when they don't turn to the God of Abraham is they make something on their own. They create something on their own. In this case, they're making an idol. And just notice God's sense of humor. Here they're creating an idol, which is supposed to keep them from being shaken by a crisis, but they need to make sure it's firmly fastened with nails so nothing will shake it. Do you see the irony of what God's saying here, okay? So the best that people can do when we turn away from God is to create something of our own, which is going to be a flimsy, man-made idol. So here's the, here's the point. You yourself or your neighbor or somebody at your workplace, when difficulties come, like if the doctor's report is grim or if the layoff notice comes or if death is imminent for you or for a loved one, where do you turn if you don't turn to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the Father of our Lord Jesus? Where does your neighbor turn? Where does your work associate turn? Without the God of the Scriptures, all people have is man-made, flimsy idols. Man-made religions, man-made spiritualities, man-made philosophical systems, which all crumble under the weight of trials. But, for God's people, it's a whole different answer. This is through verses 8 through 20. I'm just going to focus on 8 through 10. It's an entirely different story for those who look to the God of the Scriptures. 8 through 10. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servants. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Here's what you do. Fear not, for I am with you. Don't need to make a little idol. Is it nailed up strong enough so it won't fall over overnight? No, no, no. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So it's an entirely different story when God's people, the nation of Israel, face things that could make them fearful. Okay, but that's good news for God's people, Israel. What about Gentiles? And the message of the whole Bible, here's the good news, don't miss this part, is that you as a Gentile can become part of God's people through faith in Jesus Christ. You don't change nationalities, you don't change cultures, but the moment you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are part of God's people. And at that point, what God says to you is, fear not. Whenever any difficulty comes, just like what Justin was sharing about earlier, he's teaching back with the third and fifth grades, whenever any difficulty comes, what God says to you is, because you're turning to him, you're part of his people through faith in Christ, Fear not. You never need to fear anything. Why not? Because of what God says in verse 10. Just let this sink in. Every time you face any kind of difficulty or trial, 
God himself, the real God who is there, who's created everything, who rules everything, who loves deeply, who's displayed his love through the cross, displayed his power through the resurrection, God says, I will be with you. He will be with you. He says that he himself will come to you and strengthen you. He will do that. He will come and help you. He will come and uphold you. He'll hold you up with his righteous right hands. That's what God promises to do. Okay, Tuesday I experienced this. Uh, went for a routine eye appointment. Okay? And they had me take a test that they hadn't had this equipment in there before, so it was a brand new test. This is Terry Rocco's office. I don't see, if, I don't see Terry here this morning. Anyway, and, uh, and there were some problems that this test showed with my peripheral vision. And it's probably nothing. I mean, it's, it's probably you know, not a big deal. Um, but as I was walking, so the doctor talked about it. He's referring me to a specialist. But as I was walking towards my car afterwards, what I was thinking was, you know, my dad at this point has basically lost his vision. And I think it started with his peripheral vision. So as I got into my car, you know how that feels? Your stomach, you're kind of feeling sick. And just like, uh, you know, just, you feel like you're in shock. So I was, I was fearful as I got into my car. Okay, but here's the good news. Um, first of all, I know that because of Jesus Christ's death on the cross, uh, I'm completely forgiven and I'm clothed with his righteousness. And so I can turn to God in my fear <laughs> and say, help me. And I know that God is sovereign over everything. I mean, he was not like, oh my goodness, we had no idea what's happened. You know, he, he's in total sovereign control over everything and he is flawlessly good and infinitely more wise than me. Okay, just help me like catch my breath a little bit. And then I asked him to help me. I thought of this verse. I was preaching about it this morning. I said, God, you said you'd come. You said you'd be, you yourself would be with me now. And you said you would help me. And you said that you would strengthen me. And you said that you would hold me up. I don't overstate this. But he did something very powerful for me. And he gave me such a sense of his nearness. And such a felt experience of his love for me that I was full of joy. The fear drained out. The joy came. And I was, I was sensing so much real, experienced joy in his presence that the thought of losing my vision didn't faze me. Because I know that in God's sovereignty, I mean, I'm, gonna, I'm praying, for, we're praying that it's nothing. I'm assuming it's nothing, so don't, don't freak out, okay? Uh, we're praying for that. God can heal. He often does. I'm asking him for that. But if he chooses not to, the reason he would choose not to is because he's, that's going to be a gift to me of even more of him. And I was so tasting him that I thought that would be a very good deal. So I was free from fear. And from worry. Now again, don't freak out. It's probably nothing. It'll keep you posted. But here's the deal. The only way you can effectively deal with fear. I mean, you could say, oh, it'll be fine. What is that? It may not be fine. Right? That you're just playing games with yourself. And that's what many, many people and too many believers do too. We've got, we've got substance here. We have the living God who is sovereign over everything, who's at every second 
what is it? Lamentations 3. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed most of the time don't cease. No, 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 no. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed, what's the word? Never cease. It wasn't ceasing at 2 o'clock Tuesday afternoon, at 2.15, at 2.30. This was all the Lord's loving kindnesses. We have substance. We don't need to play mind games. It'll be fine. Everything will be okay. We can look full on to the worst case scenario. And God says, even that would be used by me to bring you heart-filling, everlasting, ever-increasing joy in me. And when you taste that, you say, yes. That's why Paul says, I boast in my weaknesses. Right? Yes, Lord. So see, we have foundation, we have substance, but your neighbor has nothing. Nothing. Where do they turn when the eye test shows up bad? What do they do? Only God frees people from fear. He's supreme on every category. You feel that? Is your boldness increasing a little bit here? Well, if it's not done yet, we've got one more here. Okay, let's check this one, next one out. Last point, only God is real and actually does anything. Look at verses 21 through 24. I love these verses. And God is just strong here through Isaiah. 21 through 24. He's talking to the nations again. Set forth your case. Okay, bring us, bring me, bring, you know, give me your best shot here. Give, give me like the best report about your gods, your philosophies, your world religions, your systems. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Israel. All the proofs you've got for your gods, bring them, bring them on. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Your God's telling us anything that's going to happen? Are they making any prophecies about the future? Tell us the former things. Like, did, Have they done anything in the past? Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Past things, things you're prophesying, just tell us anything. Verse 23, tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods, do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified, Verse 24, behold, you are nothing. Your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. No other God, no other system, no other philosophy does anything. Only God works because only God is real and true. So God invites them to Show what their gods have done. The answer is nothing. And then God says what he will do. Starting in verse 25. I stirred up one from the north. And he has come. Now just one one comment here. In Hebrew prophecy, you've got some past tense verbs and you've got some future tense verbs. That's how most Hebrew prophecy is done. You'd think, well, if it's prophecy, wouldn't it all be future tense? Why is it some past and some future? There's something that's called a prophetic past tense tense where God says that something has happened and he uses past tense because it's as certain as if it's already happened. That's why he can mingle past and future tense. You'll see that. Does that make any sense? Okay. He can use past tense, even though it still is 150 years in the future, to show that this is as certain as if it's already happened. I stirred up, past tense, one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun. So by the way, north and rising of the sun, that's east. So here's Israel down here. Media's north, Persia's east, so that's kind of a northeast thing that's what's going on here. 
Okay, I stood upon from the north, he has come from the rising of the sun. He shall call upon my name as a future tense verb. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, future tense, as the potter treads clay. So who declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we might say he is right? There was none, no other God who declared it. None who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I, God, was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are, Cyrus and his soldiers and his conquests, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news, speaking this word in in Isaiah. But when I look, looking around for any other gods or doing anything, there is no one. Among these there is no counselor, who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all delusion. Their works are nothing, their metal images are empty wind. So just get this settled in your mind. No other religious system, no other so-called God, no other philosophy or system of belief does anything because none of them are based on substance. There's nothing there. God is substance. God created everything. God rules over everything. God called everything into being. God is objectively real. He's the God who is there. And he's the only one who really does anything. I thought of just a powerful illustration of this. Uh, When I was in real estate, there was a, a real estate agent that I met in the office who was a Zen Buddhist. And we started to meet together and we studied um, a chapter of his Zen Buddhist book each week and a chapter of the Gospel of John. This was the deal, okay? Read a chapter of your book, chapter of my book, and then let's talk. And we had some really, really good times together. But I will never forget one conversation. We were in John chapter 3, talking about being born again. And I was telling him that, that God, through Jesus Christ, brings his power upon us. And, and it's like we, there's a, a rebirth, there's a new nature birthed in us. It's a supernatural work of God where he, he takes out the hearts of stone, gives us hearts of flesh. He supernaturally changes us. It's called being born again. And I was talking about what, what Jesus promised to do. And I looked up and he was just looking at me like stunned. He said, have you, you've experienced that. And I said, well, yeah. He says, really? I said, yes. And then he told me his story. For years, he was grieving over his pride. Successful real estate agent, and he just told me that my pride, I, you know, in terms of my marriage and my kids and, and, and people, friends, I just hate how proud I am. And so he was working really hard on meditating according to Zen Buddhism and reading the Zen Buddhist text, but he says, as, as hard as I was pursuing this thing, nothing changed. My, my pride was just like it was growing. And then he went to the Zen master and asked for counsel. And the Zen master said, you know, well, you need to, why don't you mix in fasting with your, your meditating and, uh, and just really work on, on purifying, just like subdue the pride. And he said, okay, so he went back home and fasted and meditated for weeks and months and years and his pride just kept growing. Zen Buddhism, he said, is doing nothing for me. It's exactly what God is saying here. They are all a delusion Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. And it's a long story, but he ended up turning from Zen Buddhism and putting his trust in Jesus Christ. But see, only God is real 
and does anything. And he is real. I love Isaiah 64, 4. For from days of old they have not heard or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God like you who acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. There's no other God like the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the father of Jesus. He acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You pray in Jesus' name, you wait on him, you you trust expectantly, he will work. You'll see him giving Evan Saltre a promotion, right? You'll see him work in jobs. You'll see him work in changing your heart. You'll see him work in your kids, in your marriage, in your job situation, your circumstances. You'll see him working, 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 working. He works on behalf of those who wait for him. Only God is real and works. Okay, so church, what does this mean for us? I just want you to get a picture that here the God of the universe welcomes anyone to come and publicly compare him to whatever they're believing in. He's just totally confident because on every question, on every front, he is infinitely superior and everything else is infinitely inferior. Now, this doesn't mean that we are superior to anyone. Hello? We are not superior to anyone. God is superior. All right? He's the superior one. If you're feeling like cocky or proud about this, you're not getting it. The thoughts of God's superiority should just send you to your knees before him. Right? You're not seeing him if you're getting proud and cocky about this. All right? This is about his superiority, not about ours. We don't come to people cocky and proud. We come to people Like Paul says, he went from house to house with weeping. Has anyone told you about Jesus? Have you ever considered that the God of the Bible may be real? Could we talk about spiritual things? Could I share with you what Jesus Christ has done in my life? So I I want you to just get get this picture that we can talk so humbly, I trust, but also boldly and forthrightly about God, about Jesus Christ, because God and his Holy Son Jesus, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, are infinitely superior to anything else. But the only way people are going to hear that, the only way people are going to see that, is if God works and changes their hearts, and God has said that the way that he works and changes people's hearts is how? It's through what? Our prayer and our words. Your words and your prayer is the only way that people are going to see that God is infinitely superior to everything else and turn and embrace him and receive all that he has. It's the only way. So I tried to think of an illustration. Let's see, see if, this, if this helps. Um, it's like everybody in San Jose, including you, me, we've all drunk of this poison. Deadly, terrible poison called sin. We've all drunk this poison called sin, and now we are feeling the effects of it. And there's pain, we're in agony, our hearts are hurting, right? We're broken, we're weary, and this is going to bring us all to everlasting death. Okay, so we've all drunk this poison of sin, and we're all facing everlasting death. And we're trying different treatments, different antidotes. So you're you're trying different like herbal remedies, no help, and different injections, no benefit, and different therapies. Nothing is helping. Nothing else that you're, and nothing at all that you're trying is helping. But then one day, somebody walks up to you and tells you that the God of the universe, 
2,000 years ago, sent his son, came to the earth, and through great suffering, produced the antidote. Through great suffering, he produced the cure to the poison of sin that you've drunk, the poison of sin that's killing you. And you heard that message and God changed your heart and you embraced the cure. You took the antidote of of what Jesus has done on the cross and you were freed. You were born again. You're changed. None of those other therapies helped. Only Jesus is the cure that does anything and his cure does everything. Okay, so now think about where this leaves you in relation to everybody else here in San Jose. Just, just so feel, feel the picture. So your, your neighbor right now is looking for a cure, right? And maybe they're pursuing Hinduism, say, for example, which will do nothing. Nothing. Maybe somebody at your workplace is, is, is seeking a cure of, uh, you know, kind of a positive thinking, maybe a Tony Robbins thing or whatever. That will do nothing. Nothing. The sickness is there. The pain is there. The poison's eating away. Eternal death is coming. Maybe somebody in your workplace is, you know, pursuing the, the cure of meditation, which will do nothing. So none of these other cures will do anything. They will do nothing. Your neighbor has no cure. Your work associate has no cure. They're dying from this poison. They have no cure. You have the cure. You have the cure. You do. You have the cure. You have the cure. You have the cure. They don't have the cure. They, they, they do not have the cure. What they're trying will not cure them. You have the cure. There's no guarantee that they will receive the cure. Okay? But you have the cure. You have the cure. It's the 100% cure. It's all or it's nothing. It's either Jesus or it's nothing. And you have the cure. So church, love them. Love them. Have compassion for them. Care about them. Serve them and tell them. Tell them. God invites all of humanity to compare him with every other religious system, God, anything else out there. He is infinitely superior. He is the cure, what he's done through Christ. Let's stand together. God, I pray that you come upon us right now. And that you would take this word that you are infinitely superior to every other religious system, philosophy, system of belief, because none of those are based on the truth. You alone are God. And you did send your son Jesus who died on the cross and purchased the cure for us. And I I pray, Lord, that you would just change our tentativeness and our timidity and our fearfulness and that you would help us to love our neighbors, to love those in our workplaces so that we would serve them, reach out to them, humbly share with them. Lord, we're, we're not superior to anybody else. Keep us from pride. You are superior to everything else. Make us bold. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.